Hello, and welcome to the fourth and final episode of this season of Anesthesiology News Presents, The Etherist. I'm your host, Michael DePoe-Wilson. Before we get into the episode, I want to take a quick second to say thank you for listening to this season of the series. Whether you just found The Etherist, or you listen to every episode from both seasons, we really appreciate that you decided to join us. And if I may ask one more thing, it would be that you consider giving us a five-star review, and even more importantly, share us with your friends and colleagues. Now, let's get into it. This whole story started with a number, 139,000, as in not enough physicians to care for the growth in patient needs. For anesthesiology, that translates into a potential shortage of between 17 and 42,000 physician anesthesiologists. Now, we originally set out to answer the question, how will that really look for anesthesiology? But it became clear that the specific number of physicians wasn't the real story. So over the past three episodes, we've covered how that pending shortage could lead to other more significant change, but also why that shortage is only a small piece of the larger scale changes anesthesiology is already starting to experience. The evolving and expanding role of anesthesiologists, the rise of CRNA-focused practice models, business consolidation, as well as a limited medical training system, and a lack of diversity in the specialty. It's enough to make your head spin. But when we take all of these trends as part of one bigger story, a picture of the future of the specialty starts to emerge. As practice models change, and the role of physician anesthesiologists and CRNAs evolve, the specialty will find new business models that improve the overall efficiency of delivering anesthesia care. These changes, aided by technology, will enable anesthesia providers to answer the call for more help in the future. And, with increasing numbers of residents entering the specialty, like we saw this past March, anesthesiology will be well-positioned to meet growing demand both in terms of patient needs and in the growing responsibility of anesthesiologists throughout healthcare systems. At least that is the more perfect version of events that could play out in the coming years. Any number of those factors could take a drastically different shape and leave anesthesia providers with a much different and more uncertain future. And that balance between the very good and the potentially very bad is what we want to talk about to close this season. This is Anesthesiology News Presents The Etherist, Season 2, Episode 4, A Specialty in the Balance. Envision Healthcare is a leading national medical group of more than 27,000 clinicians that treat more than 35 million patients each year, and their strong presence in anesthesiology empowers clinical departments across the country to deliver high-quality care. In response to COVID-19, Envision continues to look to their anesthesiologists, CRNAs, and CAAs as critical members of their care team and mission to maintain America's healthcare safety net. To learn more about Envision Healthcare, Connect with them at ASA 20 Virtual Scientific Assembly on October 2nd through the 5th, or visit www.envisionhealth.net. At Massimo, improving patient outcomes is top priority. In response to blood shortages due to COVID-19, Massimo is offering licenses for rainbow non-invasive blood constituent monitoring, including total hemoglobin, SPHB, for rainbow-ready devices at no additional cost. SPHB provides real-time visibility to changes or lack of changes in hemoglobin between invasive blood draws and has been shown in multiple studies to help clinicians improve outcomes. 
discover continuous hemoglobin concentration monitoring. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. We've covered the macro analysis of the shortage and the prospects for the specialty from the business side and the practice model side. But there is one more facet of anesthesiology that we haven't covered, billing. Billing is a topic that is equal parts mundane and critical. The future of billing as it pertains to anesthesia care could have as much if not more of an impact on the specialty than all the other topics we've covered so far. Maybe that's why we saved it for the final episode. If you take away one idea from this season, it should be that this is one area where there are clear problems and clearer solutions to those problems. In short, billing matters. And to get at the heart of how much it matters and why every anesthesiologist should care about it, I spoke with Stuart Heyman, the executive director for the New York State Society of Anesthesiologists and an expert in policy and management with over 30 years of experience working with physicians and professional associations. Awesome. Yeah. So I, and I kind of just want to jump in and just, especially for all of the anesthesiologists out there that, that maybe aren't familiar with it or have heard of it, but don't know the details. Could you describe what the New York state surprise medical bill is? The out of network slash surprise billing law is a mechanism that was created by the Department of Finance in New York State to allow physicians to seek payment from insurers with a third-party arbitrator, and it was geared to take the patient out of the middle. When I got to the New York State Society of Anesthesiology in 2008, there was a hearing one month after I started by the Department of Finance in New York State on out-of-network billing, on surprise billing. So I met Dr. Scott Grodine. He's a well-respected anesthesiologist out of Albany. We attended the hearing together in October of 2008, and Scott got up to the microphone and talked about the issues that anesthesiologists face without a network billing, where they're stuck chasing patients for payment who were insured, who are insured, yet their insurance companies didn't pay the bill for the anesthesiologist because they were out of network. And it put the anesthesiologists in a bad way because it put them as adversarial with their patients. It made them chase them for money. And Scott was one of very few physicians at this hearing. And there were hundreds of patients lined up to tell horror stories about receiving bills as high as $15,000 from plastic surgeons, radiologists, anesthesiologists for balance bills over and above what their insurance companies paid for their medical service. Troy Oshner, who is the author of the bill, he was the deputy superintendent for health. He got up at the end of this hearing and he said, it's our responsibility to take the patients out of the middle. This should be an issue between the physicians and the insurance carriers to settle what the correct fee should be for that out-of-network service. And he went on to say that it was up to the insurance companies to have adequate networks and to provide adequate reimbursement. Well, it actually was passed in 2014 and took effect in March of 2015. 
so there was definitely a period of time of, of getting it all worked out and making sure that we could get it into place. It, it took almost 10 years. After years of delay and gridlock, it's time to do something about this. It's the purpose of insurance to shield seriously ill patients from risk. And I think what the, what the final straw was that they needed to come up with an independent resolution for, for billing disputes. And that seemed to be the biggest hang-up. Every time we'd get close to getting this legislation passed, the insurance companies kept saying, well, you don't have a way of, of coming up with a fair resolution. And then Troy Oshner, who I believe was a big baseball fan, developed the independent resolution system that was modeled after baseball. Right, yeah, it's a pretty clear comparison. He was the author of this whole bill that then went into the governor's budget and got passed. But the IDR is really a great system. And I think that that distinguishes the New York bill from any of the other, I believe it's nine states that have a bill. Our IDR system is phenomenal because it requires when a physician files a complaint that they feel that they've been underpaid, they file a complaint through the state's website. Within 30 days, they have an arbitration hearing with a third-party arbitrator. The arbitrator takes into consideration comparable payments for that service in that geographic area. They look at the physician's training and experience. They look at the complexity of the individual case and the patient's characteristics. And what happens is then they, they will look to see who's closer to what it should be and can the physician justify a higher fee than perhaps fair health shows for that geographic area. And if the physician is closer to what seems reasonable based on what he billed, then he wins and he gets paid his fee, in which case the insurer is then responsible to pay the arbitrator. If the physician loses, the physician then pays the arbitrator and gets just the reimbursement that was given by the insurance company. I, I will tell you this, the amount of arbitrations and the amount of complaints has drastically decreased from where we were back in 2014. So looking back on the last five years, uh, would you say that it's accomplished all of those those goals and other goals that you guys set out to accomplish? I think it's protected patients, it's protected physicians, it's opened up networks of insurance companies, it's increased reimbursement for physicians to a fair level. So I think it's accomplished a lot and it's done a lot. That's, that's one of the great things. It is the model law, and, and I can't tell you, we've gotten calls from other states. We've had the ASA contact us. They're looking to establish a federal law. Not only are other states trying to establish laws comparable to New York, but the ASA is trying to do it at a national level. Protecting brain health is critical before, during, and after surgery. Discover a more complete picture of the brain with Massimo Brain Monitoring Solutions. Sedline Brain Function Monitoring monitors the state of the brain under anesthesia through bilateral data acquisition and processing of EEG signals, while O3 
regional oximetry offers continuous monitoring for regional hemoglobin oxygen saturation in all patient populations. Together, these two powerful monitoring technologies are designed to provide insight into the patient's brain activity, empowering you and your care team with critical information to help improve patient outcomes. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. Throughout the COVID-19 crisis, Envision Healthcare has stayed the course in supporting its clinicians and healthcare partners, and together, they are answering the call as America's leading national medical group. Envision has helped mobilize and redeploy more than 500 caregivers, including anesthesiology providers, to hotspots around the country, including New Jersey, New York, Texas, and Florida. Leveraging more than 60 years of experience, Envision continues to be a vital player in healthcare for today and tomorrow. Learn more about Envision Healthcare by visiting www.envisionhealth.net. The New York State Surprise Medical Billing Law has made a big difference for anesthesiologists in the state when it comes to getting paid for the care they provide. As Mr. Heyman described, it is mainly helping to limit the number of conflicts overall, and it has completely eliminated the need for institutions and anesthesia practices to chase down patients for more money. And there is a lot of interest in getting similar laws passed in other states, and even nationally, but that hasn't happened yet. And there's a pretty interesting theory about why that might be. And I think the only reason you're not seeing it nationwide is because of the insurance lobby. Otherwise, it would already be nationwide because it's got almost six years of proven track record of data that shows it works. You know, the insurance companies, when this first was going to affect, they lobbied like crazy and said it's going to cause double digit inflation in insurance premiums. You're going to see the insurance premiums go up, skyrocket every year, is what they said to legislators in Albany. And I think for the first four or five years, we saw some of the lower increases that we had seen in New York. So it obviously didn't have the effect that they 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 were fear-mongering, if you will, to prevent this from passing, because they said, oh, the premiums are going to go up, you're going to cost business, you're going to cost patients, it's going to be inflation. It didn't happen. So all the results of this bill were positive. As he mentioned, there's a lot of interest from anesthesiologists across the country, and the ASA is a major proponent as well. Here's Dr. Mary Dell Peterson again. Surprise medical bills are a big problem. And um, it goes back, uh, Michael, to the egregious behavior of insurance companies who have created these narrow networks and United being the biggest offender of this, that even during the COVID crisis, they are dropping contracts of anesthesiologists. Um, and then to come back to the table, they want a 30 to 60% cut. And so to me, that's just unconscionable, you know, while physicians are taking care of, of their uh, members um, in you know, putting their own health at risk and they're acting in this manner while their bottom line continues to improve, uh, their quarterly earnings continue to improve, and their CEOs continue to reap millions of dollars from that. We need to stop the egregious behavior of the insurance companies that are actually one of the main culprits of the surprise billing phenomenon that we see. ASA has been a supporter of legislation 
uh, following the principles of getting the patient out of the middle, actually having a, a fair payment. So there are solutions out there where we can protect patients. Uh, but I think in this legislation, we need to also hold the insurance companies accountable so that they can't charge a premium for a network they don't have. So it has been about 15 years in the making, from the start of the New York State bill to the nationwide push for similar legislation. And all of this to protect anesthesia providers and their patients from the pitfalls of medical billing and reimbursement. The money is always an important part of the conversation, but I'm not sure we've put a fine enough point on why these laws really matter specifically for anesthesiologists. Now, why is this particularly a problem for anesthesiologists? It is because we typically get, on average, paid by Medicare at only a third of the usual and customary rate of what we get from private insurance, as opposed to many other specialties which can get 80% or more of usual and customary paid by Medicare for their services. So governmental solutions to the out-of-network billing problem have tended to want to peg out-of-network bills at Medicare rates. So that's a disaster for anesthesiology in a way that is not really that significant for many other specialties. So when we hear about somebody getting accused of off-the-wall, out-of-network billing, we in anesthesiology get paranoid because we think, okay, the more of this kind of publicity that happens, the likelier we are to end up with a federal out-of-network billing solution that will put us out of business. So that's it. A looming physician shortage, runaway business consolidation, dueling care team models, diversity issues, a medical billing system designed to shake anesthesia practices clean for every last penny. We could stop there and let the gloom and doom of all these issues be a warning for the future, but that list of crises isn't really what this story is about. When we set out to report this topic and interview all of these experts, we assumed that the outlook would be bleak. And just taking sound bites here and there, it can sound even bleaker than we had imagined. But the real story, the story that we see come together when we consider all of these elements together, is a story about a specialty that is starting to figure out how to thrive in a healthcare ecosystem under significant turmoil. It's worth remembering that the AAMC report is focused on primary care and general surgery, not anesthesiology. As a specialty, anesthesiology is not unique in its struggles, but it is unique in that those in the profession are well positioned to adapt for a new reality in medicine. Anesthesiologists have the potential to grow and evolve into different areas of healthcare, and the struggle over practice models is not just a threat, but an opportunity to redefine how to best provide anesthesia care. Each potential crisis is also an opportunity to make a better future for those in the specialty. So the question remains, what will that future be? Well, we have a few ideas. Yeah, I think that um, um, the, the systems uh, in terms of the manpower and the equations will continue to evolve and be refined. Here's Dr. David Allen Kay again. I think that the technology and the drugs have improved 
which will make it better and easier for us to get that best outcome. An example of Xperil now is given out, um, whereas before local anesthetics would last four to six hours, Xperil lasts three to four days. There are local anesthetics that are being developed that will last for two and three weeks. Uh, and so I think that uh, the drug and technology aspects will always get better. Um, our ability to manage a difficult airway through uh, improved equipment is fantastic, and it's life and death consequences, whereas before we might try 10 and 15 times to try to intubate someone. Now we use a glide scope or a McGrath or a, a something uh, that has been uh, relatively new in its technology and brilliance, and that's just now standard. Everyone has them, and I think you'll see an evolution only for the good. And James Pruden got a similar answer from Dr. Zeev Kane. I think you've already shown that you're a, a, a good thinker about, about these issues. In medical training for the specialty, how is that going to change, say, in the short term, like next three or five years? Do you have any idea about that? Well, as you may remember, I'm a very strong supporter of perioperative medicine. And really to extend the work of an anesthesiologist out of the operating room into the perioperative area, we should not be limited to the intraoperative period. Now, what does that mean for training? Our core skills are surgical, perioperative. There's no question about it. But we should be able to do more things just, just before and after surgery. And we should be able to incorporate technology into it. So, you know, one perfect example is UCLA's telehealth program. It's phenomenal. It's probably the best in the country, right? So what they have done is they implemented technology into perioperative, and now they have a great program. Well, typically, residents are not trained in that area. So now residents need to be trained in technology. I'll give you another example, right? Nobody talks about nutrition and surgery. Well, guess what? It's one of the most fundamental important things in surgery. I want to remind everyone that while intraoperative deaths have dramatically dropped, if you look at death in 30 days after surgery, it did not change in the past 30 years. It did not change in the past 30 years. Happy to send you Lancet articles about it and, and, and JAM articles about it. Why? Because we're very good inside the operating room, but once they got, leave the operating room, there's a lot of problems. So nutrition is, is a very important element that we did not pay attention to. So now we're starting to pay attention. So we kind of need to be more renaissance in our training and focus more on things that are avant-garde, like nutrition, like technology, for example, just two examples. And the training cannot be the same as it was 30 years ago. And that's the biggest challenge to me. Because as I walk into the training programs today, they're not fundamentally different than training I got at Yale in 1989. And that's wrong. Because if you take a software engineer, okay, or honestly, almost any other specialty, their training did change dramatically. So we need to change our training. We need to change our thought process entirely. So Dr. Kane says the most important thing we can do is change anesthesia training to meet the current and future challenges while continuing to expand the roles of anesthesiologists. 
but he also mentioned one very intriguing topic, one that we have only covered in brief moments this season, advances in medical technology. So we started asking everyone we interviewed about this idea of what the future holds for the specialty, and we heard a lot about using technology to expand both the capability of anesthesiologists and the financial opportunities. Here's Dr. Jonathan Gouri again. From your vantage point, your experiences, um, you know, what does the future of the specialty look like? If you could kind of get a crystal ball and you could look 10 years into the future, you know, what do you see being the, the situation for anesthesiologists? And I think that um, we are uniquely positioned to take leadership in medicine because of our combination of the knowledge of physiology, the knowledge of pathology, and the knowledge of how the operating room works. And under our current reimbursement structure, the operating room is the reimbursement engine of the hospital. But we probably more so than a lot of surgeons who are very focused on their particular procedure or specialty have the best understanding of the holistic patient in that operating room environment. And, and then also technology is going to very much influence how we deliver care over the next few years. I mean, we've seen this huge change due to COVID where we've brought in telehealth visits, where prior to COVID, I would say 98% of the patients I saw, I saw in person. Now I would say 50% of the patients that I see on a day-to-day basis, I see over telehealth. And, and that's going to open up huge. Just And so I think for, for us, we are uniquely positioned to figure out how to best utilize all these technological advances to improve the operating room. Applying technology in new ways to maximize anesthesia care and reimbursements was a common answer to our anesthesia crystal ball question. But for the most part, many of the people we spoke with for this season were unsure about the future. The very idea of projecting out what the specialty will look like in the future is not an easy task, especially once you get past the obvious answer of focusing on new technology. So it's tough to even think about where the specialty will be in 10 to 15 years. But what about further out than that? If the near future is still murky with all of these changing elements and pending crises, then could the distant future be more of a source of hope? I asked Dr. Seibert to give me her best guess at that question. You know, we've been talking about the future and in the near future and the projections for the shortages, as they're stated, which are just about general specialties. And, you know, we think that may happen for anesthesiologists, as you were saying, it probably won't. Those are 10 years out. Uh, so I'm curious, what do you see the life of an anesthesiologist looking like, the daily practice of an anesthesiologist in 10 years when we're sort of meeting those projection times? And then also just to get way past that, what do you think an anesthesiologist will be doing with their practice in 25 years? <laughs> well, I sure wish I had that kind of crystal ball, and I'm not sure I have enough right brain to really do justice to that question. Most of us in anesthesiology are pretty relentlessly left brain. You know, we're very practical and, and immediately oriented. But I see technology really transforming um, the clinical practice of anesthesiology into much more of an ICU model and a controlled tower kind of model, which I think could very well require fewer physicians. And 
a tiered system. I mean, we are physicians. We're able to diagnose as well as treat. And so our task really is in the preoperative evaluation process to identify the patients who are going to need the highest levels of care and constant supervision. And then the vast majority of middle ground patients who don't, and then the ones that are really perfectly healthy coming in for their colonoscopy, who really just need somebody to make sure that they're not getting so much that they stop breathing and have sense enough to call for help if they do. A lot of this is not rocket science. I should take this moment to acknowledge once again that projecting the future of the specialty while in the middle of a major public health crisis is not a particularly easy or fair request. The experts we interviewed did a wonderful job taking into account the various elements from the COVID-19 pandemic to the threat of a physician shortage. But whether it's six months, 10 years, or 25 years from now, the reality is that anesthesiology will evolve as a specialty. The questions left unanswered then are, how exactly will it change? And what does that mean for anesthesiologists? At the start of this season, I said that we wanted to answer the questions, will anesthesiology actually experience a physician shortage, and what will that look like if it happens? And along the way, we tried to find the answers to those questions. We know that many leaders and experts in the specialty see a shortage as either imminent or already upon us, but we also heard many, many times that the shortage was not the real issue to focus on. We won't really know for sure if anesthesiology will suffer from a shortage of physicians in 2033 until we get there, but the possibility is still worth considering, even if only to help find answers to other problems facing the profession now and in the years leading up to 2033. As I said in episode one, this was never a story about simple numbers or projections. It is a story about how the specialty will survive and hopefully strive in the coming decade and beyond. And as we heard from all the individuals interviewed for this season of The Etherist, it is about determining optimal practice models, managing the steady drumbeat of anesthesia practice mergers, finding ways to update and improve anesthesia medical training and education, and making sure that state and federal laws work for anesthesiologists and not against them. But ultimately, it is about all of you, the very people who are passionate about providing anesthesia care to patients the very people who will help decide how the specialty changes and where we will go from here. Thank you again for listening to this season of Anesthesiology News Presents The Etherist. I hope that you enjoyed this season and that we were able to provide some new and interesting insights into the specialty. If you made it this far and enjoyed the ride, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you are listening. And of course, we would appreciate it if you would share the link to this season with your colleagues too. Until next time, I'm Michael DePoe Wilson, and this is The Etherist. This season of The Etherist was created by Michael DePoe Wilson, your host, along with James Pruden. It was edited by Ken Christensen. The Etherist theme music was created by David Cullen and Andrew Russell. All other music in this episode was created by Blue Dot Sessions. Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, 
Martin Barbieri, Kwang Yi Chung, Sophia Lee, Danielle DePoe Wilson, Betty Zong, and Kristen Janicone all contributed greatly to the making of the Etherist. And a special thanks to the sponsors of the show, Massimo and Envision Physician Services. Thanks for listening.